Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 223, recording on Thursday, August 16th, 2017. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Hi. We've been doing this all day. We've been recording and yeah, I was gonna say we've been recording annotated all morning. So we're like we're a little I'd say I don't know. I guess tired. Tired's the word. Tired. Don't, don't, don't don't stress, Jeff. Use words tired. are words are hard. Yeah. I'm a little in the words are hard place. <laughs> Who knows what's gonna happen in the next like forty five minutes or an hour? We have a full agenda and bots to Three say. Three sponsors. I'm holding my Got microphone like Bob Barker again because I'm still traveling. <laughs> So we were just joking before we started recording that I could write a little memoir called like Beds from Which I've Podcasted. What was it? A Life in Digital Media? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> it's very glamorous. Niche media in the internet age. Um, let's do follow up from... This first one's from a couple shows ago, I, I guess. We were talking about coloring books, falling... What were we talking... Was it you and I or you and Amanda? Were we talking about oh, coloring books? Yeah, and like, we were talking about how like sales are falling way off and um, folks were celebrating that it was like, yay, the coloring book thing right. that we're all so snobby about is over, but sales are falling way off, which we thought is you know ultimately bad news. I think it was in relationship to that... Peace Morgan Jerkins wrote about how book sales, you know, are being hurt by Trump. And we're actually, we kind of well actually that by saying, if you look at all book sales, they're up Mm -hmm. since Trump was elected. And that's even with coloring coloring books cooling off. So in a way, it's even stronger. But we didn't have any data around the coloring book numbers. And in this week's Publishers Weekly, they talk about how basically the sales for the category have been cut in half over the last 12 months. So still up considerably from what they would have been in like, 2012, I guess, mm-hmm. but as a a fad, the fad the fad part is over, but it's still healthy. But the publishing industry is then now making up for the loss of that, which was propping things up for a while too. So I thought that was worth pointing out. I'm not sure. Is there anything else to say about that? Nope. Our next uh, piece of nope. follow up is listeners have a lot of feelings about Audible for dogs. Can can you summarize the feelings? Uh, what, what what's your? Do we have the same sense <laughs> well, of what the feelings are? Somebody, well, yeah, somebody on Insiders told me that their partner is a vet, I believe, who recommends that people put on like classical music, and that it does seem to help dogs with separation anxiety. Another person chimed in that they don't know that Audible, like that the you know audiobook thing for dogs, is necessary, but that they use the TV or radio in their house um, to drown out sounds that might come from outside that might drive their dogs crazy or make them a little more anxious than they would otherwise be. So there was a lot of support for the concept of play audio tracks for your dogs while you're out of the house and not so much support for the notion that it needed to be Audible or even a different kind of audiobook than a human would listen to. But also my favorite piece of follow-up is that one very smart listener whose tweet I don't have in front of me right now suggested in grand punny fashion that it should be called potable. That's the real takeaway. <laughs> Not all heroes wear capes. Yeah, that's the good stuff right there. That's the good stuff right there. So 
anyway, there's follow up there. I had something else I was just thinking of. Oh, and um, we talked about canopy streaming mm-hmm. last time. Only one respondent said that they had it available at their local library. That the, the, of the email and tweets and other comments I saw, most people said some combination of uh, Libby and Hoopla and Overdrive. And they said Hoopla. I don't believe Libby or Overdrive has movies. I, I could be wrong about that. That they said that Hoopla did have some movies and music in there. So I'm not exactly sure how Canopy lines up as a competitor or a complement, what have you. Um, but the the market penetration of Canopy is is still pretty small at this point. So we'll follow that. But thank you guys so much for your feedback there. It really helps us. All right, should we do a sponsor and we'll get on to the, the new news? Yeah, this first sponsor this week is very exciting. It is uh, sponsored by Orbit, which are the publishers of The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemisin. It's in bookstores now, and it is the shattering conclusion, the last one in the trilogy that began with the fifth season, which was the winner of the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2016. I know you are very excited about this because now the trilogy is complete, satisfying O'Neill's Razor, and you'll be able to... O'Neill's Razor finally can be satisfied, and I can begin... Begin my journey. You can begin to stones, read these. The, um, Kirkus praised the book, saying Jemison deliberately refuses to provide easy answers. They're simply not available in this world out or ours. The book is painful and powerful. Publishers Weekly said it has vivid characters, a tautly constructed plot, and outstanding world building that meld into an impressive and timely story of abused, grieving survivors fighting to fix themselves and save the remnants of their shattered home. Again, this is the last one in the trilogy. It begins with the fifth season. The whole trilogy is referred to as the Broken Earth Trilogy. It's been praised all over the place. These books are beloved by Book Riot, by the whole Book Riot community, and readers extending well beyond that. And it looks at disasters on a global scale that start occurring on a regular basis. And these disasters are called fifth seasons in the book. They often nearly wipe out the entire human population. And Jemison also creates this magic system in which some people are born with the ability to manipulate stone and earth, and if they're strong enough, even the continental plates. So the rest of the population both fears and exploits those people that have the talent for that. Um, N.K. Jemison is renowned for her work, whether it's in novels or short stories or essays. She deals with cultural clashes, diversity, oppression, and her fiction is also frequently praised not just for its stories and its unique world building, but well-developed characters, nuanced treatment of complex moral issues, and it's just action-packed. So you get fantasy, but with a whole lot of meat on the bone here. She's also a very outspoken commentator on the genre of science fiction and fantasy. She writes for the New York Times. And most recently, um, she reviewed William Gibson's new novel and Anne Leckie's Hugo and Nebula award-winning novel, Ancillary Sword. So check out the fifth season. Check out the Broken Earth trilogy and this shattering conclusion, The Stone Sky by N.K. Jemison. Thank you to Orbit for sponsoring. Well, the link in the show notes. I think I'm... I'm traveling next week, and I think I'm fine. I'm starting the fifth season. That's that's going on my Kindle. It's been on there. I bought it for uh, as a deal of the day for a few bucks, just waiting for the day that I could start. So I'm very excited about that. I guess we didn't put this in the show notes, but a more N.K. Jemisin news unpaid placement. This one um, is that this series, the Broken Earth trilogy. I can I get it confused. Is that right? Broken Earth is that the name of the trilogy? Uh yes. Yeah, uh, coming to TNT. Mm, yeah, that just happened that last yesterday. night. Yes, um, and last I saw- night. That Amanda had texted Jen in all caps, this is happening. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yes, and that <laughs> appeared on Instagram. So the um, the repercussions of that announcement are reverberating through the book right editorial <laughs> community. Um, a lot of people really excited about yeah, that. And, already uh, a very uh, hotly anticipated adaptation. Yeah, everyone's getting adapt. I mean, it's it really is amazing. Like, I'm thrilled for Jemison in this book too. But like, it is amazing how many adaptations. Everything is getting adapted. It's amazing. Like, if you don't have a property that's out there to get adapted, you're missing out. Because I feel like there's a bubble. This has to be a bubble, right? I mean, you it can't go on like this forever. Like, there's nothing left to adapt. I was going to ask, like, if you think that there's corners of writers who are sitting in their, like, coffee shops with their laptops, banging out their stories, thinking, I hope this gets adapted someday, or they're writing specifically for adaptation. But I think that's, like, the secret dream of most writers is you hit it big enough yeah. that it becomes a movie. So I guess just keep crossing your fingers. Um, in ongoing adaptation news and the just undying universe of Harry Potter, when you told me Oh, about God. this story, I thought that you were joking that it existed because the headline is that Warner Brothers basically has given the okay for an unofficial Harry Potter movie about Voldemort. And we were on Slack and I was like, haha, that's not real. Uh, but but it is. And there's a write-up. We'll have a link in the show notes to this story that Kristen Twardowski wrote for Book Riot this week. But a production company called Triangle Films, T-R-Y, Angle Films, began working on a movie called Voldemort, Origins of the Air, and launched a Kickstarter campaign to help fund it last summer. But because Warner Brothers owns the film rights to Harry Potter, they ran into some legal trouble. They had to sort out, to sort out a copyright dispute. And ultimately, Warner Brothers has agreed that Triangle can continue to make this film as long as they make it freely available upon release. So basically, it's cool that they make it as long as they don't make any money about it and i can't i i like kind of can't decide what i think about this it's um about how tom riddle became voldemort what happened in right those years and what really went down at hogwarts when he came back it's the story that they want to tell about the rise of the dark lord before harry potter what do you it, think? Uh, I guess let's hold that in abeyance for because like the content side, I think there's an interesting question about why tell this story now. Why are we interested in this? And it has a little bit to do, I think, in, in an oblique way with the the controversy around HBO's um, proposed Confederate series mm-hmm. um, about you know what if the South won the Civil War and this and what if what you know like a weirdly creepy voyeuristically thrilling sense of bad people doing bad things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, but like, why tell this particular story? I think that's interesting to think about. But the legal side, I think, is fascinating. Mm. We had a long chat about it too um, on in the staff Slack and on the contributor Slack, and I think bled over from all the different Slacks that are related to book ride various levels. Is how, why, what is going on? What is legal? What is not legal? And and how did we get to this point where? Someone can make a movie, a feature-length movie. Again, it's not another studio, and they're not going to release it theatrically, at least I don't think, but they can make a theatrical-length feature film using probably the hottest intellectual property in the world uh, and do it. And how how can this be possible? It's it's a fascinating problem. It elucidates a lot of weird stuff about IP that I, I know little a little bit about, just enough to get myself into trouble. But that why, why Warner Brothers might be licensing it, why they may actually have to give it their official blessing for some other reason. So I guess I think there's two things that are that are worth keeping in mind here. One is the not for profit mm-hmm. provision is like they can't just go make another movie um, and release it in theaters and make you know however much money a, a proper Harry Potter related film would make. 
it isn't a professional. It, it is a semi-pro production. Like I watched the trailer, and it's actually a really, really good fan trailer. If it was released from Warner Brothers, I'd be like, boy, I'm not sure that looks great. So that's kind of where it falls in the quality line, at least from what I can tell so far. Now, maybe they have this blessing, they're going to get the money. But Warner Brothers says, you can do this, but you can't make any money off of it. Or at least you can't release it for profit. I don't even know if the actors can get paid. I don't even know, like, where does that where does that fall uh, in the line? I guess they have to break even. They're going to show Warner Brothers its books. But the other thing that's interesting is about how you deal with fandom, right? Because, like, this is not the only Harry Potter derivative work out there on the internet. Like, you don't have to go very far into Tumblr or Facebook or the internet to see, like, here's a quiz, Harry Potter quiz. Here's, uh, what was the one that we talked about a long time ago, maybe? It was like, your, your Harry Potter, which Harry Potter character are you based on the Myers-Briggs personality mm-hmm. test? And there's like little illustrations of all the characters. Like, clearly those things aren't licensed. I guess technically they infringe on IP, but they're not enforced because A, good luck enforcing Harry Potter IP on the internet, but also you don't want, if you, you might want there to be that latitude. You know, yeah, um, it, Rowling and Warner Brother might want that this, latitude. The movie thing feels to me like the next step in the just constantly evolving discussion and understanding and really culture around fan fiction that like people there's you know just like half of tumblr is harry potter fan fiction and slash fiction and folks write those stories some of them write those kinds of stories on platforms like wattpad where they maybe do make some money or patreon kinds of things like i like you're saying you couldn't possibly enforce copyright onto like every piece of harry potter fan fiction and i think the folks behind the harry potter properties have come to realize that allowing the fan culture to flourish and to, you know, make people hungry for ongoing stories and deeper stories that flesh out this universe ultimately serves J.K. Rowling very well because it keeps the ideas and the characters present and alive in a way that, you know, otherwise if it's been 10 years since you read the final book, you don't get much more in the way of it. Right. It's, it really makes them present and keeps the story going on in an interesting way. And so a fan film this feels like it's just the next thing. Like we've already sort of resolved how mm-hmm. you handle fan fiction. People aren't publishing and making money off of like Random House has not picked up some fans flash fiction about, you know, Harry and Ron falling in love with each other. But that exists on the internet and it serves a fan mm-hmm. purpose. Nobody's profiting from it. I think a fan movie is just the next step. It's like, well, people write stories about these characters. Of course, they're going to also imagine them into film and the ways that that's different, but also not different from fans just taking this universe that they love and imagining their own twist into it or Mm -hmm. pieces of background that we didn't get in Rowling's books feels pretty natural to me. Uh, Since we've been talking about Harry Potter versus Star Wars, I was thinking about how I think this is really crucial that it's Harry Potter, like that these stories, these properties and the fans of them came of age at basically the same time that internet culture was starting to really become mature in a way where you could disseminate the fan stuff you were creating like Hmm. and harry so the harry potter folks understand it like there's also a ton of star wars inspired fan fiction but i have a sense that if somebody were to make a star wars inspired movie about basically anything that they wanted to kickstart the copyright agreement from like spielberg would not be the same or george lucas it's george lucas it's george lucas yeah um (laughs) It was. It's funny that you say that because I think the first major fan-derived thing that I remember seeing and really bubbling up to be almost uh, not mainstream, but certainly into into my worldview, 
was this fan film called, I think it was called Troopers, that was kind of a parody of cops, but using stormtroopers from the oh. Star Wars movies. And I don't, I can't for the life of me remember, my understanding was that Lucas didn't really give it its blessing, but like officially ignored it, if that oh, makes sense. Like hmm. he kind of said, I'm not going to have anything to do with this, but you guys can do this thing. And I, again, I don't think it was, you know, it wasn't a, a show on HBO or something like that. It was as a fan film, a fan project, maybe even a student project or something like this. But the other tricky thing Warner Brothers has to do here and why why Warner Brothers even comments at all, it's, it feels to me like Warner Brothers would like to just ignore this. They don't want to they don't want to they don't want to squash this. They also don't want to support it. But if you have IP, one thing you have to do is protect it. Like that's part of keeping IP is if someone infringes on it or someone uses something you've done and you don't try to enforce it, then that goes in the dossier against you for trying to enforce it later. So I think what one part of the situation here might be that they're um saying we're giving you a license to make a profit so that if someone else tried to do something they were making money off of, they can mm. say, we enforce in this situation by giving them a license. So I, I think this is just one of those situations. And the Star there was a big Star Trek fan film that got, there was a huge lawsuit about that Paramount eventually came to some sort of arrangement with them. But I think this is a really, I think you're right. Like this is modern fan culture has to be thought of differently than old ways of thinking about copyright. Like you can't just say you did nothing. You will get you'll you know, you'll you'll like what you get, and that's all that you will get. Right, and you can't just purposefully but, ignore it, like you're saying, George. And Lucas you did. Yeah, that's right. You can't, or maybe you could. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I I've got that story wrong. But the other thing is, you also still have you have to move the line and be accommodating because I I certainly of the opinion now, like Warner Brothers and Rolling, they don't need a, a jillion dollars. But you could see someone infringing on someone else's IP, where it actually would cost them amount of money. Like you could, you could. I mean, I do believe in letting artists have the IP for a certain number of years. Now, maybe death plus seventy five is a little extreme. Like that's a whole other topic. But I still do think that, like, letting you know, I don't want to see people ripping off any novel and like putting PDFs of it and changing one word and like oh, sure. all that kind of stuff. That's a slippery slope, but I don't want to get that argument. But there is a line somewhere. I think this is a, a fairly humane and cagey move, frankly, mm-hmm. by Warner Brothers to do it this yeah. way. I wonder if J.K. herself had anything to say about It'll it. Be, I, wonder what I haven't seen say. anything from her about it. It'll be interesting. I haven't either. Uh, to see what happens when it comes out. And I do want to go back to what the movie is about because it does feel like this is a particularly yeah. relevant moment for this movie. Of course, when they kickstarted it last summer, the creators could not have known where we would be on August 17th of 2017 as we're recording this the weekend after a Nazi march in Charlottesville, Virginia. But the book is about Voldemort and the Death Eaters and how that core group of followers based their actions on a desire for blood purity, how they consider magical lineage to be important and believe that other magical species are, you know, lesser beings. And the symbolism J.K. Rowling has acknowledged around Death Eaters is very self-consciously parallel to Mm -hmm. symbolism of Nazi Germany. And she she says, Voldemort chose evil. I've been trying to point that out in the books. I gave him choices. Voldemort is, of course, a sort of Hitler. So also an interesting thing to point out, like the kids these days are taking the stories Mm. that they love and looking at current events through the lens of characters that can tell them something about where we are in the culture. And so I'll be I'll be watching yeah. for this. I'm more interested in this, I have to say, than in like any of the existing Harry Potter spin-off things that we've seen so far. I want to watch Voldemort Origins of the Air a lot more than I cared about The Cursed Child. Yeah, I guess it's I mean it's tricky 
it, so much depends on the execution. Like, what the, mm-hmm. is it glorifying Voldemort? Like, how much is it fetishization? Like, as a kid, I, you know, I'm not super proud of this now, but like, my favorite character in Star Wars was Darth Vader. He was cool and different and whatever. And I didn't like agree that you should kill everyone, but he was an attractive character and I didn't give it much thought. This is, feels to me like a sort of a similar move where, you know, there's. For lack of a better word, you know, it's a, it's an attractive character. It's a seductive character. It's a seductive story. It could go a couple different ways. Yeah, um, how I'm it's just portrayed. more like is this a glorification the, of the? Yeah, yeah. Just on the face of the synopsis, I care more about seeing how this goes than I've been. I'm more interested. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm more yeah, I'm more interested right, in finding right. out what this is than I have been in the other things. Since we're mentioning. Charlottesville. Um, We want Mm -hmm. to share a moment, like an opportunity, I guess, really, for literary activism. If you're wanting to do a thing, or if you're looking for multiple things that you can do um, to support the Charlottesville community, our friends at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine, um, you've heard Josh Christie, I think, on this show and on the Annotated podcast. Um, He's one of the co-owners. He and his co-owner, Emily Russo-Murtaugh, have decided that they'll be donating $5 from every purchase of Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book, We Were Eight Years in power which comes out October 3rd to a Charlottesville-based nonprofit called African American Teaching Fellows. And that's an organization that works to increase diversity among teaching staff. So if you were thinking about mm. the new Ta-Nehisi Coates book anyway, or you want to you know, do a thing to support activism and the Charlottesville community and give it a literary twist, we'll have a link in the show notes to the letter that Emily and Josh wrote to their store customers. This first appeared in Print's newsletter earlier this week, but you can purchase Purchase uh, the new Ta-Nehisi Coates book directly from them and $5 from every single purchase of it will go to African-American teaching fellows. So proud to know those guys at print. And, you know, of course, very sad that this is even a thing we have to be talking about. But um, that's just one of the many opportunities that you have to give a literary flavor uh, to your activism and support. Yeah, it's a super awesome idea. And um, if you listen to the annotated episode about how independent bookstores avoided going extinct and Josh talked about of course, it couldn't have predicted this particular um, program, this particular activity, but it's exactly the kind of thing he was talking about, is what makes a bookstore, a local bookstore, survivable, vital, valuable, engaged, active. Um, not surprising, the guys, uh, that they, Emily and Josh are, are thinking about this. So go check that out. Excited for that book, too. Eight oh, yeah. Yeah. Power, yeah. Right? Liberty yeah. has it read out? it already. It's October 3rd. Um, okay. But Liberty, okay. of course, read it, you know, like 19 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of the Book Riot um, uh, contributors are getting approved for the audiobook. Like yeah. they're rolling it, so they're they're starting right. to. I've dive heard it's, into of it. course, and unsurprisingly, very good. Speaking of audiobooks, did you? Did I, did I tell you I finished my Summer of Vowel? No, I didn't. I know listened you were to all the Summer of Vowel. That's a all, lot of Sarah I listened Vowel. to all the Sarah Vowel this summer. I'm all I'm done with all of them. I just finished. Oh um, man, I uh, love her. What was the last one? Partly Cloudy Patriot. You have I went in reverse order. It's a good question. Um... My favorite moment, uh, th- I could write a whole thing about the, the Sarah Val listening experience because it's produced. Like she thinks of it more like, I mean, not surprisingly, she was a, a, a podcast producer and you can definitely tell in some of the way the reads she does as a narrator are much more like a narration to a podcast. You know, has a little more texture and a little more flavor. It's own words and her own delivery is its own thing, right? Like there's no, there's no mm-hmm. narrator like Sarah Val. But I, there's Brad Bird, who has directed The Incredibles, um, plays... Emma Goldman and the assassin Gateau, the guy who killed, uh, was it McKinley? I think, or Garfield. No, killed Garfield. 
but he plays him as like it's an amazing performance. It's it's not very much, but it's really funny. I think I, they're all pretty similar once you get through the ones that are like book length that aren't just cut ups. I think Assassination Vacation and Partly Cloud to Patriot are the essay ones. I feel like she's in the, her, mo, her her strongest, nerdiest element in the wordy shipmates. I love the wordy shipmates. That is yeah. my favorite. I love those Puritans. Like It's like yeah. the real housewives of Puritan Massachusetts, expect, except it's the pastors instead of housewives mm-hmm. like there's all this like subtle shade and drama and sinners in the hands of an angry god and the Sarah Val twist on it is just so much fun and the history of the of the you know quote unquote discovery usurpation and then annexation of Hawaii is a fascinating story one that I didn't oh, know that's in what unfamiliar fishes oh I'm sorry yeah. unfamiliar fishers I, oh you know what I think those are tied, actually, now that you say that, because the wordy shit meets are the Puritan. Those two, I think, are my favorite. The Lafayette one, I think she's a, I just find her a little more interesting when she's, the more obscure she goes, the more I like what she does, because her enthusiasm and general warmth for the topic means that I don't have to care about Abraham Lincoln. Or, you know, because Lafayette, you know, it's a lot of Washington, and like, I know those names and whatever, that's great. But like, the specificity and, um, thoroughgoingness of her interest in a topic really comes through and like it's Sarah Vowell is more on display when she's talking about things you don't have a reason to care yeah, about already. It's, and it's like the sense. untold background of yeah. stuff you learned about in history class or stuff you maybe should have learned about in history mm-hmm. class. Like I love the Puritans. I've just always loved Puritan literature because I find it so bonkers. But like Sarah Vowell's take on the Jonathan Winthrop stuff is just yeah. it's just so much fun. I I think I agree with you. I think Wordy Shipmates is the best one. I do think Unfamiliar Fishes is my favorite one, if that makes any, Mm -hmm. that distinction is usable. Well, that's the classic O'Neill distinction. The best are my favorite. The distinction that no one cares about. That's what I specialize in. (laughs) Um, As I said earlier today, including myself, uh, oftentimes. Uh, Anyway, while we're talking about audiobooks, uh, we want to thank our second sponsor, Penguin Random House Audios, back this, this week. They're focusing on parents and kids because you can help keep your kid reading this summer by listening to audiobooks and beyond the summer, coming to the end of the summer. Visit tryaudiobooks.com slash family dash travel for suggested listens and for a free audiobook download of My Father's Dragon. So you can get a free audiobook to try right now. 85% of what we learn, we learn by listening. So listening to audiobooks with your children and keep their reading skills sharp throughout the school year when you're going to from in soccer soccer practice, you're going to volleyball practice, you're going to the science fair, you're going to 4-H, you're going to see grandma, you're going to see grandpa, you're going, you know, anywhere you might be going. You can, you know, make it part of what you do in the car with your kids. My kids are still a little bit young. I, I'm going to try a kid's book soon with them. Um, but I was just talking to some friends of ours who, for the first time, did an audiobook with their kids, and they did Jim Dale's uh, Harry Potter, and they just all fell in love. And it was all, it was like, PRH Audio should make an ad about that. Just like one of these sort of stories where, like, we fell in love, we were listening to Charlotte's Web and whatever, because they were really effusive in their, like, it was so much fun to listen to something together. And all age ranges, I listened, the first audiobook I ever listened to was with my dad. I don't know if I told this story. No, I haven't heard before. this one. My brothers and I, we would go out to visit my grandparents or go skiing out in Colorado. So between Lawrence and uh, Colorado Springs, there's, you know, I-70, you know the road, I'm sure. It's like, it's it, it's almost, ex- fl- the, the road is as flat as the country, and it's just 10 hours of I-70 in a row. 
and we listened to Anne McCaffrey, McCaffrey's The Dragon Weavers of Pern or one of those dragon novels. And I thought it was really cool. I remember thinking how strange it was to listen to someone read a book. I thought it was even stranger for me and my dad and my like two younger brothers to be listening to this book. I didn't sure they get it. But I remember that feeling of like it was so much fun in a road trip to be listening to the same thing and talking about the story. Um, there is a giveaway that they're doing as well. You can go visit the, the website at um, tryoutabooks.com slash family-travel. And they're giving away copies of the book, Fee- the book Thief, The Pearl, and The Time Machine. Go check that out. Thanks so much for them to sponsoring the show. All, All right, right. We're already halfway in. I know. Where do you want to go? Where do I want to go? I kind of want to talk about this profanity thing. Let's do it. Give me, give me, what's the deal? Tell there me is a new study from psychology scholars at San Diego State University and the University of uh, Georgia that have found that books have become increasingly more profane since the 50s. And they like they can peg it to the timeline, and they say that it's George Carlin's famous comedy routine from 1972, the seven words you can never say on television, that's to blame. The researchers use those seven words, which I cannot repeat on this show. Yes, no, you cannot. feel free to Google them. Uh, as the crux for their study, and they cross-referenced them with words um, in American literature through Google Books. And they concluded that books after the, um, let's see, books are 28 times more naughty now than they were in the early 1950s. MFR, for example, Mm. was used 678 times more often in the mid-2000s than it was in the old days. And there are some other... Uh, examples of proliferation. Um, there are some curious ones, like a, a particular insult peaked in the mid-90s and not during the run of Deadwood, as you might have expected mm. if you're familiar with that show and uh, some of the slang that it uses. But there are great charts showing the rise of each of the dirty words and you know how it coincides with that moment of the comedy routine, but also uh, the rise in, they call it increasing individualism in hmm. culture. So I saw some jokes on Twitter about how like the millennials are not to blame for this. Like here's one thing, like books are dirtier and it's actually not the millennials fault. This um, is this is related but an aside like that particular the MF one that you mentioned mm-hmm. um as as you know I'm a student of early 20th century American lit. I I it, as far as I know it doesn't appear in any books or letters even from oh, yeah. those folks. So I don't that I don't know the genesis of that particular one, but my sense of that is very much a 1960s-ish and after I I don't know how it happened, but I would listen to a podcast about the the rise of that particular yeah. epithet because I I definitely feel enough as as much as I've read about 20th century like there is some it just kind of comes up and becomes super popular. And it is a very satisfying swear. So I can see why once someone popularized is like, yeah, there's juice yeah, that's in that particular it. one. That's it. That's the one. So um, I'm interested in that from that point of view, Maybe too. that this is like a follow-up annotated episode for the future. Yeah. I'm just going to pitch you ideas on the fly now. That's fine. Um, that's what we should do. That's Because that's the Ulysses show that we just that mm-hmm. came out last week was about how that was the dirtiest book in the English language at the time. Like, it was filthier than anything anybody had ever seen. But now, like, to a reader now... Most of the stuff in that book, like you might recognize that it's, you know, conceptually dirty, but it's not really any dirtier than anything that you see on HBO. And we're familiar with stream of consciousness and all that, all that business. But it would be interesting to track, you know, like dirty books of today and the rise of some of these particular words or stories. Because, yeah, I can't think of... 
also i'm really not the re- the reader for this like i don't notice because mm. i'm super sweary so i don't notice when i'm reading something where a character swears because it's like oh yeah of course they do um but yeah. it's, it would be interesting to go back and and take a look well not to make this an annotated director's cut which means that's what i'm about to do when i say a <laughs> phrase like that but remember ulysses was made legal in 1934 mm, and you couldn't mm. really say anything right i mean before 1934 so if we do say the 50s is when it picked up that's only 16 years so it's like people who came of age in the time where you could write anything. Yeah. Maybe it just took a while for that to get baked into the consciousness of what you could say. Yeah. And what's interesting is the difference in the shapes of some of these charts. Like some of them are relatively steady rises, but like MF has a spike around 1970, probably due to George Carlin. It is spiky, but dipping into the 80s. And then it starts rising steadily again hmm. into the mid 90s. It dips a little in 2000. It starts going back up. Um, and some of them other, like some of the other ones have a rise and then a sharp fall and then a sharp rise again. And I wonder too, like, I mean, we're talking books now, but not, and not music, right. but some of these might be connected also to like, oh. I mean, to like Reagan era politics, but then later to Tipper Gore and the big push for clean mm. lyrics and moderating what came out in music. And um, I'd be, I would really love to see these charts up against curse words in music. Yeah, that's really interesting as well. And and I, I wonder too, I mean, sheer volume of, of lyrics alone, but like rap, the cursing is you know, part of the parlance, right? Mm-hmm. So I just wonder if that's uh, something to, to think about there. Um, when well, TV is you know, changing too, like that's not, yeah, that that's is not nothing. I was watching Younger a couple weeks ago and like it's on Nick at Night and they said the mm. P word. Yeah. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> on Younger? Yeah, it's, it's all right, okay, that's where we are now. Um, not surprisingly, all of these charts start in 1950 because before, you know, in the 30s and 40s, it was still, you know, it's still not sure what we could do legally, especially in books. Mm-hmm. If you like this kind of study, this, the link in the show notes is really interesting. I can't remember the guy, the name of the guy who wrote this book, but I just read it. Um, Nabokov's favorite word is mauve. Where he does oh, a lot yeah, that of, was like, great. Data science uh, about language. I think it's fascinating. I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't say I'm skeptical. I think some people are more interested in the digital humanities, like this thing is being really useful and interesting for some reason, like analyzing Austin's word choice about um, how surprised everyone is. Like, I don't know what that is exactly, but I think we're in the early days of trying to find useful. Mm-hmm. I think we have tools that are interesting, but the problems we're solving with those tools for language and literature aren't, at least the ones I know of. Right. Uh, uh, we haven't really out, gotten beyond the, like, isn't that interesting phase of yeah, it. Yeah, like, or weird. I haven't looked I think at it this way before. there was you know. an excerpt of that same book that maybe we refer to on this show where mm. they were talking about that Toni Morrison's sentences are actually shorter right. on average than Hemingway's sentences are. Mm-hmm. And, like, it doesn't really do us any good to know that other than that it overturns this notion of Hemingway being, you know, just the most terse of all the big writers. Right, right. But I kind of like knowing these things just for the sake of knowing them yeah um let's go jump back up real quick to let's see where let's talk about the ripped bodice real quick i thought this was interesting as well um they're doing a patreon which it's now we should tell the people what the ripped bodice is in case the ripped bodice is a bookstore in it's in la right Mm -hmm. yeah it's in la i didn't know if it was in some other southern california town um, but it's in LA and it's a romance bookstore dedicated to romance. And they kickstarted the launch of it or Indiegogo yeah. or whatever, like a year or two they ago. They crowdfunded, yeah. And and Patreon's a little bit different. This is for ongoing projects. And what they're doing is they're kick... God, I even have to get it out of my uh, language that just used Kickstarter. They're creating a community. They call it a community for romance readers. 
So what they're trying to do is um, compiling, they're getting direct funding from their fans and customers, not just to buy books, but to help them create other content and provide other stuff to do around romance, which is interesting as well. So there's going to be behind-the-scenes content. You're going to get... uh, discounts. You can get a custom book recommendation. You can, you know, at different levels, you're going to get access to different things. If I have one critique, it's a little too complicated for mm. my taste. But that's not that's not about the project. That's just about you know the structure of what they're trying to do. Um, and it's it's the top ones are expensive, like twenty dollars a month gets you patron only content, ten percent off their brand new T shirt, cuts a, cus, a custom Fitzwilliam waffles video. That's their dog uh, who has that's one their eye. Dog has one eye. And then a monthly custom book recommendation. They'll send you one every month, and that's $20 and 10 and 5 and then 3 So that's interesting. I guess I love the idea of bookstores creating stuff that allows their fans and customers to support them in a way in addition to or besides buying books. Um, I'm wondering what you think about like the structure of this, like the actual the product they're offering. Does that make sense? Like, I guess I, I'm thinking from two ways. Like, one, awesome, this is a cool idea. Mm-hmm. I hope people are into this. And then I'm also just super interested in what they're offering. You know, I think this, like this lowest level at the $5 per month, you get access to the patron only content that's once a month behind the scenes newsletter or behind the scenes content from the Ripped mm-hmm. Bodice and once a month exclusive content from a visiting author. Like, it matters to me a lot what form that content takes Mm. like if you get to see cool video of an author event that you couldn't attend or that you otherwise wouldn't have had access to that's way cooler than like i don't know like a blog post about the author's favorite 10 questions with one of those sort of yeah 10 questions with like the kind of thing that you can already get all over the internet in content that's just promotional essentially or like if it's publicity content for a book that i could normally find somewhere else i don't want to pay five dollars per month for it but then you get 10 percent off their new t-shirt you get a one-time custom book recommendation like it's a it's a decent hook i think you're if you're making your um content stuff five dollars per month it just has to be good appealing content also like to throw in our thinking fast and slow language i'm pretty Mm. anchored at the dollar amounts that we charge for book riot insiders which is our own community of readers and so i'm kind of comparing whether i want to or not like our five dollar level to their five dollar level Um, which of course yeah. yeah of course like i think the um the Fitzwilliam waffles video of their dog where like you write the script and they'll record the video just for you is a really fun, like mm-hmm. quirky, whimsical idea. And people like that. It makes them feel connected to it. But it's also the kind of thing that um, my guess would be people tell you on Twitter that they would totally give you all their dollars <laughs> if you would do that. Like it's the take my money now gif, mm-hmm. but might not actually when push comes to shove like 10 bones a month, $120 per year. And you're just getting like one Fitzwilliam waffles video and one custom book recommendation for like, that's your extra five bucks per month for things that you're only going to get once. I'm a little, I have a little side eye for that. I think the sweet stuff really happens at their $20 per month Mm -hmm. level where you get those ongoing custom recommendations and romance readers on the whole, like the average romance reader is a more voracious reader, in my understanding, than the average reader of basically any other genre. So you could really keep them thriving on custom book recommendations and sell them custom book recommendations. So it's smart, I think, on the part of the ribbed bodice folks to make this a level where like you're getting their 20 bucks per month, but then you're also getting the money they're going to spend when they buy the books <laughs> yeah. you recommended from you. Yeah, that's interesting. 
Um, I guess the other thing that I'm just interested in is they say they're creating a community for romance readers. Unless I'm missing it, is it how is this a community ah, exactly? I see. Right. When do I they mean, actually th- talk to each other? Not that I think they're trying to dissemble or whatever. When I saw it, I was thinking again, maybe I'm anchored at insiders. Whereas, you know, there's a Slack, there's, you know, that there's crosstalk. This is extra content. It, it, this it seems to me all one-way communication, save whatever information you give them about what book recommendation you want, mm. which is not how I understand community, which again, doesn't mean this thing is wrong. I just suddenly realized, oh, I wonder what a community for a bookstore that could be patreon would look like. Because that could be very cool too, mm-hmm. especially around um, a passion interest like, yeah. like ro- a lot of romance readers have. I think it's this is a really interesting opportunity that they have with romance readers that you don't have in most other independent bookstores. Like just being a person who shops at, I'm just going to use print since we were talking about them earlier. Like just being a person who shops at print doesn't necessarily connect you to any of the other people who shop in print. It could be that the store is the only thing you have in common, but at the ripped bodice, you all have this shared love of romance, which is like the redheaded stepchild of genre and the people Mm -hmm. who read it and want to connect with each other are hungry for ways to do that. And the internet has created a lot of really interesting ones, but a face-to-face bookstore opportunity to do it or to connect with people online would be great. I do agree. I hadn't quite gotten to like that mm. level of critical reading of like, oh, but where is the community mm. component? Because this is, it's essentially paying for access to special stuff. Right. Um, and not, Which again is again. Oh I'm, yeah, I'm trying, totally I, I don't fine. want to say no, that's yeah, yeah, bogus. Like, I just like it's a totally, I had some cognitive dissonance. Right. In it's a totally at it, valid yeah. thing to do with your Patreon. Um, is have people pay for access to special mm-hmm. stuff, and that's how they typically work. But yeah, I think if you're talking about creating a community, you do want to be giving some thought to what community really looks like and how community is different from the A to B. Like we sell you a thing, you buy it relationship. Yeah, because yeah, this essentially is a subscription where you get a couple different things. Um, that are pretty soft. Not and that's not a qual. That's not a evaluation. That's more of a description. Like you're getting digital goods, a discount. You know, a video. Um, it's interesting. So yeah, I like. I love to see bookstores trying stuff, and they are. I don't know exactly. I'm a little. I'm not as well versed in the the Patreon um, language and glossary, but. They have 65 patrons already, and they said their goal is 200. Okay. But it says once we reach 200 patrons, Fitz will jump for joy. So I don't know if that means... Literally. <laughs> are they, or, or like, is this happening right now, or do they need to hit 200 to do the whole thing? It's a mm. little unclear to me. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe I'm just, again, anchored in the Kickstarter metaphor, um, where this, I think Patreon is... You start it, and no matter how many people you get, you're yeah a going. Concern. That's, my understanding, that's my understanding. Is that whether you have one or one thousand subscribers or mm-hmm. supporters or patrons, I guess would be the patrons, yeah. <laughs> the noun there. Um, that you are making the thing that they're paying for and providing it to them. And I guess at any point you could decide it's not worth it and kill the thing. But as long as your mm-hmm. Patreon exists, I'm I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, folks, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's uh, you're doing it for whoever's there, no matter how many of them. Are yep. there? Uh, do you want right. to hear about our last sponsor before we I roll do. on? It's I the do. Hawkweed Legacy by Irina Brignall. This is from Weinstein Books, and this book is about Poppy Hooper. 
Uh, she's only just discovered her position and her power as Queen of the Witches. She's fled her dangerous world and the betrayal of her best friend Ember Hawkweed and flown to Africa. But Poppy never stops longing for her would-be lover Leo, and when she feels his magic begin to spark, she will do anything to be reunited with him. As the girls come of age and Poppy's powers grow stronger, her mother sets into motion a plan that puts Poppy and Ember, the boy they love, and the world as they know it at risk. Um, the author here is a screenwriter, and this is a sequel to her critically acclaimed YA book, The Hawkweed Prophecy. So you might want to pick that one up first. Summer is a good time to be doing this. And it seems to me like this is the duology. They go together. It's complete. Uh, this is full of romance, heart, suspense. It's completely absorbing. It's about a young witch who's forced to choose between love and magic. So that sounds good to you. You can pick up Irena Brignall's The Hawkweed Prophecy and The Hawkweed Legacy today. We'll have a link to those in the show notes. Kakutani? You do that next? Yeah, I, I have Quickly. Kakutani and Pepe the Frog, <laughs> which is also oh. like a, a weird children's <laughs> book together. <laughs> <laughs> so she, uh, we talked some episode ago about Kakutani stepping down as the senior book critic for the New York Times, going out and doing her own thing. Word came down this week about one of what one of those things will be, and it sounds like basically she's going to write a fire emoji book about alternative yep. facts. <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that how you understand this particular, yeah, actually, if this it particular comes, description? If it comes out and the title is either like a gif of a garbage fire or just a bunch mm. of fire emojis, I won't be completely shocked. Yeah. So that in her book, I'm not, I've lost track of where and who and what it's called. Yeah. And there's, and there's a, if you're interested, there I was going to say the piece we're going to have in the New York, in the show notes is from New York Magazine, and it is long and thorough and a really fascinating profile of her. Yeah. Um, which I highly recommend if you're interested in that. But I guess the thing that the nugget of news in this was this new book that's now I can't even find the title. I've lost it, but it is a, a cultural history of alternative facts. So I'm guessing we're going to get some Trump stuff. We'll probably get some Orwell at least, and I'm sure some other things. Um, she's been in the newspaper business for 30 years, so I'm sure she has some thoughts about news writ large, not just, um, uh, you know, oh, the death of truth is what it's called. It's coming out from Tim Duggan Books, which is an imprint of Crown, which is an imprint of Random House, which is on planet Earth, which is in the solar system, which is in the universe, <laughs> and now we're which is all in up this dimension. Date. Now we're all now we've got an imprint all, all of an imprint is a very like that. That's a very specific wheelhouse. That's, that's tricky. Game. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if we should find. I wonder what the longest sub imprint genealogy we could come <laughs> up with. Like how many? How many? Like. Down into the right arrows, do you get, like like there's let's see Tim Duggan Crown Random House that's only three right and like Bourdain is Echo is Harper Collins yeah right and then Lee Boudreaux books I think is that's Hachette and mm -hmm. I think it's Lee Boudreaux's within Little Brown which, which is, is within in, Hachette you might need to go like genre like. Mm. Like fantasy YA within fantasy within children's within like probably one of the right. I mean that's how those things are structured. We should make this a contest. If you work in publishing and yes. you have a really good one, email us yes. at podcast at bookriot dot com and yeah, we'll what's the, we'll give you something. What's the longest genealogical chain you can come up with for for an extant imprint? Yeah, um, and and that all of its um, <laughs> supra prints are are still. It's got to be like well. seven. Yeah, I would say uh, seven. Are, are you serious or are you joking? I don't. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, 
more than four, and it's really weird. But I mean, maybe I, I'd say probably four or five is where I would guess. But there's probably, and then there's an outlier, right? right. So maybe okay, seven. And yeah. then there's so the, the weird stuff about like if it was merged with something else or acquired. Yeah. or you're probably right though that it's one of these the, a celebrity or an individual is going to be the end of the food chain. Like they're right. going to be the last yeah, one because they're managed by an imprint. There's itself. Sarah Jessica Parker's thing, which I don't remember the name of, is inside yeah. Hogarth, which is either directly inside Random House or inside like Doubleday inside Random House. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, like if Salam Reeds ever had like a YA branch off, that would be a good contender. And mm-hmm. then they had a celebrity YA Salam Reeds. Like that that's the kind of thing where you're within a, a niche within a niche within a niche. But um Nesting yeah. dolls. Anyway, Kakutani's got a book coming out. It's gonna be straight fire. I'm here for it. Yeah. It should um, be interesting. In other interesting news and I guess to talk about the ongoing <laughs> important distinction between mm. censorship and not censorship. Yeah, let's end here. Uh, yeah, An assistant principal wrote, let's see, from where? At a Texas middle school, wrote a children's book with the alt-right mascot, Pepe the Frog. It cost him his job. Um, basically, it's set on a farm in a place called Wishington. Astute readers will see that there's a kafifi cliff. Um, mm. There's a smiling frog, which is a white... If you're not familiar with Pepe the Frog... From the internet, it's a popular white nationalist symbol, and he has a centipede friend in the book whose nickname is Pede, which is also a term um, that members of a Donald Trump-themed Reddit board use to refer to each other. So in the book... Uh, Pepe and Pede start off ecstatic that the old farmer has left after eight years of oppression because there is nothing like hitting it right on the nose. Um, and then the these guys and their minions have entrenched themselves in a pond that happens to resemble a swamp, and they're threatening to spread throughout all of Washington Farm. So Pepe and Pede have one we- one weapon to vanish them: buds from the honesty tree. <laughs> And school district officials said that they became aware of this. Um, It started spreading on social media and it became ultimately a distraction from the learning environment. This also happened at the same time that the Charlottesville rally of neo-Nazis and white nationalists was occurring. Um, So he has lost his job now. And uh, I wanted to touch on the fact that this is not censorship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, one of the conversations that I've seen floating around the internet in the last couple of days is, um, and in light of also the Google guy, like we didn't talk about that on the show because it's not oh. related to books at all, but this like manifesto that the Google guy got fired for writing um, about how he felt persecuted as a conservative person at Google functionally, like being your, your political ideology, whatever it is on when, wherever it falls on the spectrum is not a protected class. That's not like Mm -hmm. race or gender or religion. Uh, And someone choosing not to do business with you, or in this case, not to employ you because of the opinions that you espouse is completely within their right. Uh, So I'm not sorry that this happened. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it happened either. I am willfully ignorant of like all the like subreddit meme stuff. Like I know what Pepe is. I have no, I really don't understand what it's, I, I don't get it. Like I saw, I'm like, I'm not going down this rabbit hole. But this seems like the, the guy publishing, it's like now playing kind of dumb about it. It's like, ah, I was just trying to, you know, uh, this is, you know, he knew what he was doing. Come on, give me a break about this. I just, I can't. I can't deal with like the fo- the disingenuous. I was just trying to create some funny stories. It's like 
that's not what this mm-hmm. is. That's not what this is. I, I'm sorry to say that I wish I could, I wish I could get up my like freedom of speech dander about this because you know he did get fired from his job and that's not cool. And I wouldn't like to see someone get fired from a similar job for writing a book with two with with a male a uh, 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 gay love interest story, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's similar, but you could see the inverse version of this where someone gets fired and. But like this guy is like this is a troll. This is a troll move, right? To, well, to yeah, self-publish this book. It's in that I think it, this lives firmly in that quadrant of freedom of speech does not equal freedom from consequences. So like right. if you taught at a conservative religious school and you wrote a children's book about you know gay characters that normalized and accepted gay characters, like that runs counter to the morality mm-hmm. that your super conservative religious school espouses. They have the same right to Im- impose those consequences. We wouldn't like that story. Yeah, but they would still have the same right to I don't know enough do about it. that. I mean, cuz like sexual orientation is a protected class, but is writing about mm. gay people does oh, right. it, so I, that's I, a, I wonder maybe what the, if they just wrote a book about liberal yeah. yeah. Not to con- yeah, to not muddy with the waters too much. If they had written a book with just, you know, liberal characters celebrating the toppling mm-hmm. of George W. Bush eight years ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, I don't think you self-publish a children's book with Pepe as the character to do good let's just put it that way and let's leave it there like this is a what a, this is so dumb um you just can't you can't do this it's, i mean and not and expect to keep your gig and expect someone to have to like keep you employed like you just you don't have to do this there are no uh, this is the publisher who picked that up there's no hidden messages here there's no hidden agenda he created this character, and he didn't realize all the backlash no, was going to come from it. And that quite is frankly, just near the die. That really, is just the ultimate insulting. theme is law and order. This is a feel-good story in support of good versus evil. It's just give me a break. Just there's not enough Kit Kats in the world to give me enough breaks to <laughs> swallow this. Particular story. My old boss would go, "I was born at night, but not last night." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like that one. So anyway. Um, that's the end of that story. You know, you want to counteract that crap? Go buy a copy of the new Tanahasi codes from print, and five bucks will be donated. Very, very well put. Um, we'll talk to you next week. What do we want to hear? Oh, if you are a publishing nerd within a nerd within a nerd, and want to <laughs> nesting find dolls a, of nerds, the nesting dolls of a publishing house to see what the the longest chain you can find of sub imprints, we'd really like to hear that. And also any other feedback you've got for us at podcast at bookriot.com. I'm also interesting too. I know a lot. Of, one thing that's hard to know what in, I find difficult to know what all the interesting things independent bookstores are doing, and I'm sure, like with print, we know them and we've talked to them. With Rip Bodice, they a lot of our contributors and people that are sort of the book writer follow that because they think it's cool and it is cool to have a like, there's only one, so that one gets um, media attention. But if your bookstore has like a formal or informal community building part that's not just events and signings, which is totally fine, but like that's a that's a known quantity. We know that exists. Like, is there anything else that they do to build community within their customer base, their client base? Um, if there's programs, other things like that, I, I'd sure like to know about that. Podcast at bookriot.com. You can find show notes for this in all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. And uh, we'll be back next week. All right. Have a good one.